You're listening to the Fitness and Wellness Class, powered by NASM. NASM's new subscription service, NASM Connected, is the best value in fitness. When you sign up, you'll get access to everything you'll need to expand your career, master new disciplines, and stay up to date with your certification in one great package. Gain instant access to over 350 online fitness courses available anywhere, anytime, on any device. Earn CEUs for dozens of approved providers. Plus, unlock articles, webinars, videos, and podcasts from the biggest names in fitness. Don't wait. Sign up today and unlock the best content in fitness at the best price. Get connected at nasm.org connected or call one 800 460 6276. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being here today and for attending my presentation. So I've looked at what you've already heard, and um, it's really interesting stuff. I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction today as a dietitian and really go through something that I think could be valuable for your patients, your clients. Um, you know, I was thinking about this concept of this conference, and it is the future of fitness. So this is so fitting for what I'm going to talk about today, because I'm going to go over a topic called nutrigenomics, which looks at the connection between our diets and our genes. And it looks at the possibility of looking at a more personalized medicine approach to how we are interacting with our clients and our patients. So first things first, um, I would love to take questions. I know that this is a topic that I know when I started getting into it, it was a little bit intimidating for me because um, I didn't necessarily learn genetics in dietetic school. So I thought, well, I can't do this with my patients, but the answer is you can. And I'm going to tell you how once you start seeing the reporting and things like that. So if you do have questions of any kind, please make sure that you submit them. I'm going to be doing questions in the last 15 minutes of the presentation. So um, let's get into it. What am I going to talk about today? Well, I'm going to talk obviously about what nutrigenomics means. But you can't talk about nutrigenomics unless you understand and realize what epigenetics is. So I'll talk about epigenetics. Epigenetics is about gene expression. I'll talk about what that means in relation to maybe offering something like this for your patients and your clients. Um, what are the appropriate populations? This isn't necessarily right for everybody. I know in my over six years of doing nutrigenomics testing at the Cleveland Clinic, I don't offer it to every patient. Sometimes I wait six months before I'm going to offer it to a patient. So there's some interesting things then. Um, and then just some ideas, if we have time at the end, on how you can create actual meal plans, action plans with interacting with your patients. So let's start with a few statistics. Now, you are probably going to see statistics all week long about obesity and behavior change and things like that. So what I really wanted to kind of hone in on with you is the statistics related to malnutrition and the top causes of death. When we think of malnutrition, right? I've asked my patients this before and I've done this in presentations. We often think of someone who is like gaunt and thin and their, their skin looks awful and things like that, right? But if you look at the clinical definition of obesity, obesity is a malnutrition state, right? So if you have clients coming to you as a fitness professional and they want to lose weight or they're there to build muscle, they want to exercise with you, whatever the case may be, 
if they are obese, they are in a malnutrition state. And so that could mean a few things. It could mean that their diet stinks, um, that they're choosing the wrong diet in order to lose weight, which is probably why they've seeked, sought out you so that they can get a little bit more advice. Um, and that's really where kind of the science of nutrigenomics I have found with my patients comes into play. You will see when we look at the example reporting here that there really is an opportunity to get more into that personalized approach, to look at someone who's in that malnutrition state, who perhaps is on a keto diet, having way too much fat and saying, you know what? Your genes indicate that you will not do well on a ketogenic diet. You'll do well on a higher protein diet, but maybe not a high fat diet. So just some examples of what those look like as well. The other thing is nutrient deficiencies. Um, one of the main things of a nutrigenomic test, regardless of what brand you're going to go with if you wanted to do this, um, is that nutrient metabolism is going to be a main chunk of it. So you're going to be able to pinpoint, okay, what are some of the vitamins and minerals that this patient is not genetically absorbing well? Um, and I'll explain what that means when we get into the reporting mechanism. All right. Um, top 10 global causes of death. The only thing I really want to highlight on this one is just the fact that heart disease and stroke to heart-related things continue to be our top causes. So as we know, if you look at um, some of the main things here, even COPD, um, diabetes, obviously, those are all things that we know can be related to diet in some factor. Now, as a fitness professional and nutrition professional, regardless of what your background is, you know that there are as many different indicators to why someone becomes overweight, becomes obese, can't lose weight, et cetera, right? So it's a lot more than just diet. It's sleep, it's stress management, obviously it's exercise, it's things like your muscle to fat ratio, things of that nature. Um, but our top causes of death, we still know are things that are very heavily um, based on lifestyle practices, okay? Um, and then this is just showing high income uh, countries. What are the differences here where um, in terms of the, the top two, heart disease and stroke, really no difference at all. We're just seeing differences in things, as you can see lower down on the list, kidney diseases, um, some breast cancers. Um, you know, We have differences in the high-income countries with that as well. All right. And then finally, before we get into part of the meat of the presentation, the global life expectancy. So this is just, I think, something that I always like to show when I'm looking at malnutrition and I'm looking at um, the most current data and statistics that we have. Um, as you can see here, about 72 years of age and then different uh, in terms of the different regions of the world. Women do live longer than men. Sorry, guys, we've seen that now in data for the past three to four decades. So um, just some interesting stuff. And then uh, this is just kind of showing um, a graph kind of depicting that where we are in the United States, where we are in the world. The reason I'm showing this is because I've actually done some presentations um, on nutrigenomics outside of the United States. It's getting a lot more traction and interest. Uh, I've gone into Latin America. I've gone into the Middle East. So we know that people outside of the United States are now looking at this data, looking at the science and thinking this is something that they might want to consider for their patients and their clients. Okay, let's get into some diet trends. Um, again, I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time here because of the fact that you're probably going to hear from many different speakers 
on all of these things. But the top diet trends we see today, um, and just let me, I've got another chart to show you here, are going to be keto diets. That's going to be a big one, and intermittent fasting. Um, the keto diet is going to be very strong in terms of its fats capacity. You know that if you're doing keto or if you're prescribing keto to your patients. So that's going to be a big one. Um, it's also going to be a big one. You're going to see when we go through some of the genes in a nutrigenomics test in relation to whether or not someone will be successful on keto. Intermittent fasting, um, obviously you can go with many different approaches on that one. So the dietary factors can change. Intermittent fasting is pretty much just that snapshot in time of when you're eating. So most people know that. Um, Syrit food, if you saw that and said, what the heck is that? Why is this trending? Um, it's because it's the diet that Adele did. And so there's been a lot more interest in seared food diet um, and less interest over over the past, past few years in paleo and in vegan diet. Not to say they're not good, but just less interest in terms of what we see in the surveys and what people are actually doing. Um, I wish I was standing in front of you on a big stage where I could ask everyone to raise their hand if you have your patients doing keto or doing seared food or paleo, um, things of that nature. I can't, so um, feel free to submit that in your questions if you want to, if you want other people to be aware of what you are prescribing. Okay, let's get into personalized medicine and why it matters. So I am a registered dietitian. I have worked as the lead dietitian at the Cleveland Clinic the majority of my career. I left uh, Cleveland Clinic uh, as the lead and I moved to Denver, Colorado. Denver is just filled of wellness opportunities and the outdoors and there's everything that you can do here that's wonderful. But I still work for Cleveland Clinic. So I still do nutrigenomics testing for Cleveland Clinic. Um, I see all my patients virtually and I have for the past three years since I left Cleveland. So what I have found in my 20 years as a dietitian is that people often think that the best diet to do is something that is trending, like those diets I just showed you, or something that their neighbor or their sister did well, or something their husband did great, right? The best diets for my patients, what I have seen with anecdotal evidence, are the diets that are the most sustainable, right? What can you stay on long-term? That's the best diet for you. And then if I kind of piggyback from that, the personalized approach comes in to keep that sustainability up. I have noticed with many patients, some patients that I've worked with for years before I did nutrigenomics testing, that they failed at one diet after the next for many different reasons. And then once we got the personalized approach and they knew that, okay, my genes are dictating this, my genes are telling me this, they actually increase their ability to sustain the diet long-term. So I think personalized medicine, as, we, as I said earlier when I started this presentation, this is about the future of fitness. Personalized medicine is the future of nutrition. We have to go to a more um, direct approach to our patients and our clients that speaks to their own individual needs rather than giving them garden variety trends that have been useful in other people, but not necessarily themselves. Okay, uh, let's move on from that one. And let's get into uh, just some definitions. So um, just a, a little bit of information here. Why did I get interested in nutrigenomics? I'm a dietitian, right? Um, so it's not something that, again, I learned in school. So when I was in dietetic school, I actually worked 
uh, at the same time. And I worked in a department at Cleveland Clinic called cardiovascular genetics. Cardiovascular genetics was essentially all the patients that had very high cholesterol from a familial perspective. Um, so high family history, people were getting sky high cholesterol, heart attacks, early on in life, 20s, 30s, um, and dying early on in life as well. So we had this whole department at Cleveland Clinic where we would essentially um, en enroll those patients into different studies to look at kind of what are they doing? Um, what has been the dictating force on why they have gotten the high cholesterol? What are some of the genes involved? So I got into this really early interest and really interest approach to the fact that our genetics were so much more powerful than, than anything else that could be prescribed to us, right? Um, it gave us that power to be able to make changes because we knew it was personalized to us. So these are just some, diet, um, some definitions. Hopefully you have read this as I was discussing. But one thing I really wanna point out here um, is the fact that we have these sequences of letters, right? So you see A, C, G, and T. These are referred to, and I'm, it's gonna make more sense in the next slide, but. These are referred to as your genotypes, um, your gene variants, and the variance is what makes you different from, let's say, your brother, your sister, right? Um, we are, for the most part, the same as humans. We are 99.9% .9 all genetically the same, right? So we have this 0.1% that makes us different, that makes us respond differently to different factors. Now, of course, you could look at a whole variety of things, right? You could look at, um, let's say if you got a 23andMe test or you got another health test and you notice that, okay, I have a gene that puts me more at risk for breast cancer. My sister does not have that gene. So you can look there, but from this perspective of what we're looking at with nutrigenomics is more about little simple things like, our fitness level. What is gonna be the best thing for me to do in terms of building muscle? It varies based on your genetics. The best diet, I've already talked about that a little bit. And from a nutrient metabolism standpoint, do I need to consider taking a supplement versus food for some sort of vitamin? B12 could be an example, folate could be an example. So if you look at this picture right here, right? We imagine our DNA, we know it's a double helix, but let's just imagine it as this one little strip here. Um, what we have here are something called SNPs. SNPs stand for single nucleotide polymorphisms. And what we know is that these SNPs, these snippets of DNA, can constitute that little 0.1%, right? So you have this DNA, you have different gene variants, and you're going to see this in the examples. And then we have these small, little, nitty-gritty indicators of where we're different in some perspective. And that's how we can then change meal planning perspectives, even your fitness approach, even your prescription for fitness. Epigenetics. So I did say that epigenetics was critical. So here's the one thing that has happened to me multiple times when I get into a nutrigenomics of patients. We start the we start the we start the reporting, right? And I'll say, um, you know what, you've got the genes that make you less susceptible to being able to absorb. Uh, B12. Okay, so here are the sources of B12 that we should be looking at, et cetera, et cetera. And there have been times when patients have said to me, well, this test makes no sense because my diet's perfect, right? I mean, I, I eat well. Um, so I always have to remind people that like, it doesn't matter if you eat fast food all day long, right? Or your diet is perfect. Your genes never, ever change. The test that you give your patients 
the results are going to be the same the day they were born and the day they die, regardless of any other factor. Epigenetics is the expression of those genes. So we know we can't change our genes, that's for sure, but we can change the expression of them. Some people refer to it as turning a gene on or off. So let's go back to that example of the woman with B12. I can tell this woman, well, we might be able to turn this gene off if you're getting adequate amounts of B12 in the diet, or we look at a supplemental approach. Then we're gonna change the expression of the gene. Gene doesn't go away, but we're gonna change the expression of the gene to be able to have it work for you. So epigenetics is about making the nutrigenomics test, the genes that someone has work for them by turning on or turning off. So I think that's a really important factor. And it's something that people do not always get with genetics is that these things do not change. They never will. But we have plenty of data, about 10 years worth at this point, that we can do some dietary approaches to turn them on or off. And that's probably the best word to look at it. All right. Um, nutrigenomics. It's definitely something that um, you might want to consider, and that's because it looks at the connection between our genetics and our dietary approaches, really our lifestyle approaches example um, in, in general. So um, I've talked about this already, and so you've already seen like what does the gene variant mean, things like that when we get into the testing. Um, we know that this is going to be something that was discovered in the genomics era. And we also know that this is something that could potentially help our patients sustain the diets. All right. So what are some of the controversies? Let's start with that first, of, first and foremost. Before you look at these controversies, I will say this, that there have been laws passed in Congress um, that have protected people from this information that they might get ending up in the wrong hands. So I'm, I'm sure if you've talked about nutrigenomics with your patients already, as I have, one of the first things people say is, I don't know, this is genetics. I, I don't want to, I don't want to submit that. What if my insurance company finds it? Or what if this person finds it? So there are actually laws meant to protect, um, whether it's health insurance or life insurance, whatever the case may be, your employer. Um, so that shouldn't happen. And again, um, the brands that you work with, I work with a company called Nutrigenomics, M-I-X, out of University of Toronto. They do a great job and they're consenting and things like that to explain those laws. So that might be kind of give you a little bit of um, guidance on if you get that question. But basically, these are some of the things that people worry about with nutrigenomics testing, specifically to genomics testing in general, right? Social engineering related to viable offspring. What the heck does that mean? So it means that I have a fear that what's going to happen is you're going to get my data and then you're going to somehow discriminate my child who is genetically linked to me, right? Um, so there's a lot of concern. I get that. Um, but there are also plenty of laws that protect us. And the only other thing I will say with this slide is that you have to make sure that whatever company you work with to do nutrigenomics testing, that they are using labs that protect the patient, that protect these laws. Um, that's a really important factor. I don't know about all the companies out there. I can only speak for the company that I use at Cleveland Clinic, um, and they're great. So Let's get into some of the genes. Um, I have a lot to show and I wanna make sure we still have questions, uh, time for questions at the end. Let me go back and tell you that these are the 45 most commonly tested genes. Now I will say in the past month, 
the company that we have worked with has now added 45 more. So the test that I now provide is a 70 gene test. What I'm showing you here is a 45 gene test. So these are not just coming out of like the air, right? Um, when I started doing nutrigenomics testing at Cleveland Clinic about seven years ago, we had seven genes, seven, okay? And that was the whole test. So what happens is as we get more data, as we get more research, we get more availability to be able to put other genes here on the test. So we have 70 today, and I guarantee you in a few years, we'll probably have it into the hundreds. We'll be able to really pinpoint a lot more dietary factors, but today we've, we're gonna start with 70, and I'm gonna show you an example of what these look like. So this is a sample report. Um, you can kind of see it. I'm going to show you a larger section of all these different indicators so you can see it a little bit better. But as you can see, there was nutrient metabolism. I also go through cardiometabolic health with my patients, uh, weight management and body composition. It's really interesting. I've had patients where I ask them the first question, hey, why are you here today? Why do you want to do nutrigenomics testing? And a lot of times the answer will be like, well, I just want to lose weight. I want to know what diet to do that. It is possible that you have a patient that gets to this page, the weight management and body composition, and they have no variants that are out of the norm to indicate what diet should they be on. That happens, right? Um, so just to let you know, not every patient is going to have something pop up that says, hey, you should be high protein or you should be low fat. Um, and I'll talk about that at the end when we get into kind of how you approach this with your patient and how you counsel your patient. Um, we also do two different uh, approaches in terms of being able to look at food intolerances. So um, I know a lot of patients that I've seen, they have gotten other tests to find out is specifically if they are gluten intolerance, so a non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Um, the nutrigenomics test, I will say, is the absolutely most accurate way to do it. It looks at your genes, looks at your saliva, and it doesn't matter if you've got gluten in the system or not. It doesn't matter if you had gluten in your shampoo or your lip gloss. None of that matters because your genes don't change. So it's really probably the most accurate assessment of non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And I'll show you that as well. Eating habits, um, so you know, sugar preferences, things like that. And then fitness and physical activity. I will say the 70 gene test has expanded this area of fitness and physical activity pretty greatly. So that will be interesting to see if this is something as a fitness professional you wanna look at. So let's get into a few more specifics here. So I'm gonna start with nutrient metabolism and a gene called MTHFR. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of MTHFR, but about 48% of the population has what we call an MTHFR deficiency. What the heck does MTHFR do? Well, MTHFR is like the chaperone on prom night, right? MTHFR attaches to folic acid and is able to then, once it attaches, take it across the blood-brain barrier into the brain so you can get folate into the brain. And when you don't have a lot of folate into the brain, we know that increases the risk for things like depression, for example. So we've had patients come to us and just say, I'm not depressed, but I got like, I got brain fog. Brain fog is the one thing we hear over and over and over again. Um, so a lot of times we will test them to see if they have an MTHFR deficiency. Um, here's some great data here looking at, uh, you know, people that had certain gene variants that made them more likely, or let's say less likely to be able to absorb folate, get it across that blood brain barrier. And you can see when individuals have a specific gene variant, their risk goes up considerably. So it's not going to work for an individual who just says, okay, 
you know, I'm not going to really look at diet, but I want to get in a folate. Uh-uh. What's going to happen with this one individual is they're either going to increase the sources of folate that they have in the diet. And you can see some examples here. Um, or they're going to take what's called a methylated folate. So methylated folate has the methyl group already attached to it. So you can get that across the blood brain barrier. The other thing that I was saying is we're looking at nitty gritty snippets of DNA. So there could be that a patient has MTHFR deficiency on one marker, but not another marker. So some are related to that crossing in the blood-brain barrier. Others are related more to that metabolism of getting folate actually into the bloodstream, okay? So they, they vary. The other thing I wanna say about this one slide that you're looking at here is that regardless of what company you go with, if they're giving reporting, they are always gonna make suggestions on uh, how your patient can kind of combat a specific gene variant. In this case, they're listing chicken liver as one of the best sources of folate. And while that may be true, this is where you as a practitioner can say, you know what, chicken liver might not be the approach that I would take. Um, for me, I wrote an entire book on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I know more about the liver than I ever thought I would. I wouldn't recommend chicken liver to my patients. Uh, chicken liver, whether it's a chicken or a human or a cow, whatever the case may be, even though it's nutrient rich, that liver holds all the toxins of that animal. So it's not something I would go with. So you can always change the conversation based on what you know, what you've been taught and what your beliefs are. I might go with some of these other things like, okay, let's see how we can increase some beans in your diet. That has folate. Leafy greens, that has folate. Or I might scratch this all together and say, I think let's talk about some methylated folate options. Let's talk about what dose you should start with. And let's talk about what we're going to look for to see if it's really being effective. Iron is another thing that you may see in some of your patients. This is another thing, a nutrient metabolism. Um, there are several different indicators for iron that we see in the test, okay? So you can either look at low iron status. So as you can see here in the top left corner, two and three individuals have low iron status, okay? Um, also to kind of give you a better depiction of what you're looking at here in the top left corner, again, you're gonna see in this indicator or in this one sheet, we are looking at three genes and three markers, okay? And then they're doing an algorithm looking at all these different variants because that's what we have in the studies. In other areas of the test, you might just be looking at one gene, one marker, and two variants, and you either have a variant or you do not, okay? So this is where I think um, on one hand, it can get confusing and intimidating for people that did not study genetics in college to be able to report on this. But I also think if you choose the right company, they have very good reporting mechanisms. I think this one is fabulous and that it really breaks it down and makes it easier for you, even if you're not a huge science guy, um, to be able to kind of talk about that with your patients, okay? The other thing you can look at um, with iron is you can also look at getting uh, too much iron. That is really rare. It's about one in 250 individuals. We rarely see it. Um, and it actually relates to a liver condition. Let's get into cardiometabolic health now. So um, coffee is probably the biggest one that people want to see in cardiometabolic health. It's also the largest gene that we have seen in terms of being tested and able to see whether or not you're a slow or fast metabolizer of caffeine, okay? So this looks at a gene called the CYP1A2 gene. It has gotten the most doom and gloom um, in terms of press. 
So there was an article that came out uh, a few years ago in the paper, and it said your next cup of coffee could be your last, right? Um, so what does the CYP1A2G mean, right? Um, the CYP1A2 gene puts people in one of two camps. Based on your gene variants, you're either a slow metabolizer of caffeine, meaning it takes you forever to clear that out of your system, or you're a fast metabolizer of caffeine. You have that cup of coffee, gone. That caffeine's gone. You can have your another cup, no problem. Those are the people that can have six cups a day and can have a cup of coffee before bed. The slow metabolizers, though, if you have a cup of coffee, your body is struggling to get that caffeine out from the first cup. So if you then have a second cup, you've now compounded the caffeine and it grows and grows and grows. And the risk factor with that one is that you could get an acute high blood pressure risk and heart attack. That's why there's been doom and gloom with that gene, but it really is an interesting gene to look at in terms of the metabolism of caffeine in particular. And this is just showing you, it's not just coffee, um, it's many different areas of caffeine that you might see um, in terms of how you are going to communicate with your patient. Now, I'll tell you another thing. Some genes, um, you very few, but some, and this is a great example, you might already know how you're gonna fare, right? I knew when I did a nutrigenomics test, I knew before I got the test that I was gonna be found out to be a slow metabolizer of caffeine. I just knew I got jittery and if I had two cups, I just felt weird. Um, so in some of these things, people will know, right? And they'll say, oh, that makes sense. Or there's a gene called the COMT gene and it looks at your pain tolerance. And people will say, that makes sense. I gave birth without any meds or I have a great pot tolerance for pain or, the fitness genes, that makes sense because when I work out with weights, I build muscle up very quickly or I don't build muscle up. So um, I think a lot of this can also be really interesting to your patients as well in terms of their ability to understand um, how those genes are really directing how they feel throughout the day and how successful they are in certain indicators. Um, this is what it looks like in the one test that I do to my patients. So as you can see, they're looking at one gene, the CYP1A2 gene. They're looking at one marker, okay? So that's one marker. There's multiple markers, but this one marker is specific to that caffeine metabolism. And then they're looking at the risk variant. So if you have a GA or an AA, then that means that you are going to be considered a slow metabolizer of caffeine. Let's say you had a TT variant, okay? Um, then you're not gonna be a slow metabolizer as far as your genetics are concerned. You might also be asking where the heck do these variants come from? They come from mom and dad. So one comes from your biological father, one comes from biological mother. This is the reason why even in sibling groups, we can see different responses to foods and fitness mechanisms based on those gene variants. One kid may have gotten a T instead of an A with this one gene, and that would throw the whole thing off and make that person different from their sibling, okay? Okay, weight management and body composition. So this is like, as I was saying, kind of the bread and butter of many of my patients. Um, I will not deny that on the rare instance, I would say maybe one in 25, um, on the rare instance when someone will will get the test and have nothing off, meaning that there's no gene variants that will explain anything that is special or out of the norm in terms of their genetics with diet. They'll be like, oh man, I just spent all this money on the test and I still don't know what kind of diet I should have, right? I know about nutrient metabolism, cardiometabolic health and things like that. Um, so in those indicators, a lot of times what I do is I'll still have more of a nutrition consult, but I will tie in things that are more fitness related from the dietary approach. So I think that's a really 
interesting way to look at it. Okay. Um, energy balance, just looking at some of the things that these genes look at. These are all things you're familiar with, resting metabolic rates, um, based on your genotyping and specific genes that we're going to look at. That can help you with understanding, okay, am I going to be able to lose weight on a diet that is lower in calories or will that not really matter for me? Protein is another big one. So we started with a um, awesome presentation by Quest Nutrition. Um, I have always loved Quest Nutrition. I love working with them and, and I love their products. And I will say that I oftentimes will bring them into the conversation once we get into this protein conversation, especially because of the fact that many of my patients have been found that they're not going to do great on high fats, but they do really good on high protein. So they're just a great product to consider that if that's something that you're thinking about. Um, why is protein necessary? Well, obviously we know why protein's necessary, but the genotype responsible for a lot of the protein needs that we're looking at is specific to something called FTO. Um, FTO is looked at about three or four times in a typical nutrigenomics test. So that's the gene. They simply look at different markers of FTO. So the FTO gene is referred to as the fat mass and obesity gene. It has a huge indicator on what diet you should do in order to lose weight, whether or not you're going to be able to be successful with weight loss, whether or not you're likely to be overweight or obese, and also whether or not exercising will play a large role. We know that there's studies that show that if you put diet in one bucket and exercise in one bucket, and you've got a patient that wants to lose weight and they can only choose one, diet typically will trump exercise. But there are some genotypes on the FTO gene that has shown that certain individuals exercise trumps diet. So when I see that in one of my patients, I'll say, okay, we got to have the conversation about what you're going to do in terms of working out. And I'm going to refer you to one of the personal trainers that I work with. You have to do this together because diet is gonna be really important, but not as important as fitness. And that's like not that common. The studies have shown that diet is more important than fitness. Fitness is of course important, but in terms of weight loss, not weight maintenance, but weight loss, diet's more important. So again, this is just one thing that we're looking at with this one, with the FTO gene um, and the ability to be able to understand how you can break that down um, in terms of dietary factors. Okay. Um, all right. So I've talked about all of those things that now we're going to go into food intolerance and we're going to start with gluten. So gluten has uh, the largest algorithm, about seven different genes, or I'm sorry, seven different markers on the HLA gene that they're looking at on this one. So here's what we're looking at. The HLA genes are genes that are meant to tell you whether or not a food is going to be like totally cool, everything's great, I recognize this, no problem, or if a food is gonna be like, I don't get that, that's a foreign invader, and I'm gonna fight against it, right? When the body fights against it, when you have an antigen gene, because the HLA genes are the body's antigen genes, okay? Kind to, trying to decipher, foe versus friendly. Your inflammation level goes up, and you could have a whole host of other symptoms, sleep disturbances, tummy ache, Lots of things, right? So when I said that the gluten intolerance test for the genetic perspective is the most accurate, it's because it's looking at that HLA gene and seven markers within it. So um, we know that when we get this, when I see this test, it's broken down into either low risk, medium, or high. Um, I've gone to all the presentations on all the latest data on HLA genes. And when we see someone that is uh, designated as high risk, 
for the HLA genotyping, we do ask them to consider getting tested for celiac disease. High risk is rare. Um, so is medium risk, quite frankly. Like I know a lot of people think that they are gluten intolerant and it's not always popular to be like, hey, not everyone's gluten intolerant, but only 20% of the population has it when you look at that. So um, just something to, to think about. And then of course, the dietary approaches. So depending on what level of risk, low, medium, or high, my suggestions are going to change. Um, low risk, I'm not really gonna say anything, but maybe I already had a conversation in the cardiometabolic section on the importance of making sure you're eating intact whole grains, fiber, et cetera. Medium risk, we're probably gonna have a conversation of either a short-term elimination diet, or we're gonna talk about where gluten actually exists in their diet to begin with, okay? I'm giving you all this detail because you have to determine how long you wanna be on the phone or in person or telemedicine with the patient when you have a test, okay? Um, again, I'll talk a little bit more about how I actually do that as well. Power and strength, this might be something that is interesting and really um, pertinent to you because a lot of personal trainers are, are watching this presentation. Um, there are variations in a gene called the ACTN3 that show that um, you can either be an ultra or um, you can have an enhancement in being able to build muscle quicker than the average person. Um, when we look at places or we look at individuals like Olympians and bodybuilders, things like that, they tend to have some of these genetic differences that just kind of what I like to say to my patients, make them more kind of the kryptonite, the Superman approach, right? There are some genes that actually do that. There are also genes in power and strength that can go into your VO2 max as well, right? So We've got power and strength in one bucket, and we've got the VO2 max in another bucket. Some of my patients score high on both of them. Some will only score on one of them, right? Either power and strength or a higher VO2 mask. Again, I'm not a personal trainer, but the personal trainers that I will then refer to will oftentimes look at those and say, okay, if you are asking me as your expert, what do we want to start with in terms of our prescription for fitness, we're going to start with walking and running, or we're going to start with weight training, things of that nature. So um, these are just some examples of what I was saying in terms of like, what are some of the gene variants? So a CC or a TT, if you're a CC and you're typical, it means that you're no more special or no different than the 99.9% of people that are going to go and start doing some weight training, right? Um, if you get into the TC, um, that's common in more elite power athletes. And then TT is uncommon in elite power athletes, just to kind of give you that example of what we're looking at with those. Okay. Um, genes related to fat loss and muscle gain. So I think these are interesting here. Here we are back to that FTO gene. So FTO, again, other than the one that has been so highly recognized, the caffeine, the CYP1A2 gene, the FTO gene is probably the next biggest gene that we see on nutrigenomics testing and has the greatest factor on your patient's um, prescription for both fitness and for weight loss as well. Um, so as you can see here, I'm just providing a little bit of data. And by the way, at the end of my slides, there are all the references. I've got probably 20 to 40 um, studies referenced here if you wanna look at the references. But as you can see with the FTO genotyping, um, if someone has a specific gene that says that they do not do well, on having high fat diets, that's someone who we're going to say, okay, keto is not going to work for you. 
That's the example I was trying to give at the beginning of this presentation. We're not gonna take that keto approach because your genes do not feed well into it. Unfortunately, we're gonna look at a less than 10% saturated fat approach instead. And we're gonna look at different dietary approaches to see if those work better for you. Another gene, the PPARY2 gene, uh, is a transcriptor uh, factor protein gene. Again, looking specifically at the effect of protein diets, high protein, low protein, medium protein, in terms of effective fat and weight loss, right? So again, when we're talking about fat and weight loss, these are really important factors to consider um, when you're giving a dietary prescription. You can start to see why this is so much more personalized and better, quite frankly, than just saying, hey, you know what? Keto's getting a lot of traction. Why don't we try that and see how well you do on that one? Imagine if you could go a step further the genes that that person has to be able to make that dietary prescription, okay? Um, what about, uh, there was a study on genes and high intensity uh, interval training. Small study here, but again, looked at the, un uh, the unregulation and regulations of being able to look at whether or not a gene would help you be more successful in HIIT training or are you gonna be more successful in a different type of training, okay? Just another example of that. All right. Um, so we've got about five more minutes before we get into question and answer. Uh, okay, I'm going to be checking my email for questions soon. So let's spend the next five minutes talking about implementation. First of all, what will nutrigenomics not do? It's not going to tell your, your clients how to change their genetics. I already explained that. Genes don't change, never do. Um, but we can look at the epigenetics and we can say, we're going to talk about how we can make the genes work for you, or we can kind of quiet them so they're not as disruptive to your fitness and dietary routines. Um, it can tell how it's going to help you with making better dietary changes. Um, it can't replace the qualified provider, obviously. So um, a lot of times I will tell my patients, you know, if you're going to get a test, you got to do a test that has a dietary provider or physician or a physical, uh, a personal trainer that has nutrition certification. All of that has to be important because that person has to interpret what the results mean and the meal planning considerations. Um, okay, let's go on to the next one. How do you communicate results, right? So this is where I was saying, you've got to figure out the time. Um, right now I've got, um, you know, in my template at Cleveland Clinic, I've got a little bit under an hour and I've got a 70 gene test. So the approach that I take is I find out the goals of the patient beforehand. Hey, what do you really want to talk about? Are you interested in cardiometabolic health? Is it just weight loss? Is it just fitness? Um, and if the answer is, well, I just want to know how to lose weight. I know I don't have to go through, let's say nutrient metabolism or food preferences. I can really hone in on the genes that are going to be specific to those goals. Okay. They'll get the whole report but I know what I can do in that time frame. Um, I always do start with that high-level summary. So um, in the report that I use, you'll see that you've got these nice big chunks and you can see based on the color coding where there are gene variants that are off and where there are gene variants that are fine. Um, highlighting the most relevant information and explaining the components. Um, what's a gene? Some people know that, some people don't. What's a risk variant? Uh, where do you get those, those risk variants? Mom and dad, right? Some of those things are really important for the patients. Um, focusing on being as specific as possible. So I'm not just going to tell a patient, okay, you're less likely to be able to uh, metabolize vitamin C. I'm going to say, hey, the reason you can't metabolize vitamin C that well is because this gene is responsible for transcripting other proteins that are then responsible for absorbing vitamin C 
right? So I'm going to go into a little bit more detail on why that actually has occurred and then go through the action plan of how we can combat that. Um, Got to be attainable and realistic, obviously. Um, this is just looking at the SMART approach, which you probably have already used in your practice uh, beforehand. And the client readiness, I think this is a really important component. So I've talked at the beginning of this presentation that I often don't start with nutrigenomics testing. It's not the first conversation I have. Some patients, I will work with them for three months, six months, a year, and then I will either bring it up or they bring it up to me. I have had other patients that have said, okay, I really want to be able to do nutrigenomics testing. Can I see you as a patient? Um, so that's kind of a backwards approach where we're starting very, very specific as opposed to very high level and looking at the genes and then going downward to say, okay, now let's talk about the dietary plans that we're going to look at. Um, there are some components that you just have to remember that like not every patient is going to want to do this either because they don't want to provide their genetics um, they have to pay for that. And so insurance does not cover nutrigenomics testing. So it's an out-of-pocket payment. So that takes away a big chunk of some of your clients who might not be able to pay for that um, or just might be uneasy about it, might want to start with more of a dietary approach that's not as personalized, right? So you have to kind of feel for what that looks like. Regardless of what your patients do show, I can tell you that um, this reference that I have here, um, long-term improvements are enhanced when you have more of a personalized approach. I've been saying that over and over again in this presentation, and I've been doing that because it is true. We have seen multiple studies. We rarely see someone that says, okay, I have a gene, so eh, you know, screw it. I'm just not going to do anything. It's just who I am. Um, for the most part, what the surveys and the studies show is that someone will say, I have the gene. Now I know that I need to take certain measurable actions to try and change the epigenetics of that to make this work to my advantage. Okay. So there's a lot of things that we can look at with that one. Um, and just in the last minute or so, choosing a, a testing partner, um, as I had said, I, I chose one seven years ago because we had a relationship um, you know, with someone who had come and presented over and over again, we did our homework, wanted to make sure we were going with someone very reputable, very credible, and had a very credible lab. Those were all important factors to us. Today, there are a lot of different companies on the market that you can consider. So um, just be very picky on who you're going to choose and how the reporting looks, okay? Um, if someone gets like, for example, 23andMe, they don't do nutrigenomics testing. They can provide you with the genes, but it's simply the raw data. So you would still need someone to interpret that data and actually put it in this like kind of beautiful report so the patient can understand it. I already talked about um, the safety, the payment options, um, the future testing ability. In the company I work with, all the individuals that started with me a few years ago um, and did the seven genes, I don't need to take more saliva to give them new reporting on the 45 genes and now the, the 70 genes. That saliva, that data is already in the system. I simply need to run the report with that. All right. Um, we are going to do some questions. Okay. So I'm just going to check to see if there's any questions that have come in. Um, uh, bear with me for one moment. And in the meantime, this is how you can get in touch with me. So, um, of course you can get in touch with me by, um, Instagram or by, by any of the things that, that you would like in terms of, um, email, anything like that, you can go straight to my web address um, and connect with me on that one as well. I don't know if we have questions. Um, if we don't, I can go back to a few genes. Bear with me one moment. I'm just trying to see if any 
emails have come in on questions, but I am not, I'm not seeing any. You guys don't have as many questions as I thought you would. Um, you can still submit them if you like. I am checking my email to make sure that we have them. I'm also going to take, just for the people that are supporting this, I'm going to take my phone off of uh, Do Not Disturb. So if there's questions that come in via text, you can also um, get me that way as well. Okay. Um, so let me go back to a few genes or a few, a few indicators here, just because we have some moments before we get to that. Okay. That I really want to hone in on. Okay. I'm getting some questions. All right, good. Let me go back to my other genes. Okay. Sorry. Thanks for bearing with us. You know, this is the world of virtual conferences. Um, Okay, so a uh, lot of requests for a copy of the slide of the presentation. Yeah, so um, if you want a copy of the presentation, and I think that's a great idea because it's got all the references, email me. You can go to my website to email me through there. Happy to provide that to you. Um, can you study inflammation or foods containing inflammation, how to stay away from foods causing inflammation? So, you know, um, we don't have genetic capability to look at inflammation, um, what we have obviously are two different tests, C-reactive protein and sedimentation rates. Um, but I will say the lactose and the gluten test do look at inflammatory factors. So HLA genes, if you have the moderates to high risk, it does mean that inflammation is most likely occurring because the body is fighting up against something. So I would say the food intolerances are probably the best indicator that inflammation is occurring, but we don't have the test from the genetics to look at that inflammation. And probably because inflammation can change, right? It can go up and down based on certain variables. So C-reactive protein sedimentation rate are probably the best ones to look at. Um, are these via blood? So no, this is saliva, this is genetics. So um, we are looking specifically individuals get, I'll tell you how ours does it. They get a kit that's sent to their house. Everything is already like, nice and all the instructions. They basically open the little thing. They put in enough saliva. It's like that much. If you can see me, um, they put the, they top the kit, they shake it. Okay. It's very clear. Put it back in the box, send it back. Okay. So that's the end of that information. And then um, their data is saved in the CLIA approved lab um, that our company uses. And that's why, because the data is in there, we can run the test on different variables. The company that we use, um, we they have actually have multiple different tests. I mean, they have fertility tests. They have a whole bunch of factors. For me as a dietitian, I'm only covering the nutrition part today. Um, is this testing something I can rent to my clients to help them? Yeah, hopefully, um, hopefully you, you definitely can, um, you might want to partner with someone else to be able to do that. So I saw that was another question here. How do we get tested, get affiliated with a professional company? Um, so I can tell you that, uh, the company that I use now, this is just our, my specific company, which is Nutrigenomics, MIX at a university of Toronto. Um, they only use dietitians to interpret results. So you can simply go in, you can register at, if you're a dietitian, you can register as a provider and then you can take all the training materials. They have great resources. They train you. And then from there, you can then offer that to your patients, right? And then you would provide the results. Now that's not, that's just that one company. Um, there's other companies where, um, they will provide you with, some sort of reporting mechanism, and then they'll provide you with their expert to actually report it to your patients. 
I think the bottom line is if you wanted to do nutrigenomics testing, there is a company out there that you could do it. Even if you are like, have absolutely no interest in genetics, have never studied genetics. Um, you know, most fitness and wellness professionals have not had a lot of insight into genetics. So that's why I always say, I don't want people to be intimidated by this. When I train other dietitians on nutrigenomics, it's the first thing I say, do not freak out of the fact that you don't have genetic training. I'm going to explain to you all you need to know in terms of the genetics of nutrigenomics, but the most important factor is going to be how do you then translate that into dietary approaches and fitness approaches? And I think that's really the most important thing. Um, okay, just looking at these questions. Um, how much protein do you recommend to kids, adolescents, and adults? So great question. I had mentioned um, <clears throat> my work with Quest Nutrition, and I decided working with them because I do see a lot of insight from the data on the benefits of protein in the diet. Now, Protein needs vary in many different factors. So it varies by gender, your activity level, your weight, your chronic disease risk, um, your kidney function. There's a lot of things that vary, but from a general perspective, we always start kind of at the, at the bottom in terms of our calculations. And we take a, a general 0 0.8, kilo, um, 0 0.8 grams for every kilogram of weight, okay? Um, so if you know your patient's weight, you convert weight, you convert pounds to kilograms, you multiply it by 0 0.8. That's the low end of grams of protein. And the high end, this is again, very general is typically times 1.1. Okay. So on average, you could be looking at 67 to 88 grams for like your average female, middle-aged adults, normal fitness levels, et cetera. Um, my protein does vary though, based on when I get into the actual consult. I had a patient uh, just a few days ago. He was in his seventies. He had started seeing some loss of muscle mass. Um, he was tired. There were all these things. So in addition, obviously I'm part of an interdisciplinary team. I'm lucky for that. So of course I'm going to refer that patient to the physicians that I work with so that they can get testing, make sure there's nothing going on. But in the meantime, we had a whole discussion on how to increase protein sources, right? And what were some of the sources on when they could, on how they could do that. Um, my clients started using the, the Quest ready to drink uh, protein drinks um, and started integrating the Quest protein powders into his uh, pancakes, into his soups, things like that. Um, he, he did that because he didn't want to start eating like more. Hey guys, sorry, we had some technical difficulties. I am back though. I'm, I gave me a chance to look at all the questions. So again, um, if we run out of time, you can email me. I've already gotten a few emails from people, which is awesome. Okay. Um, so I was talking about protein before we got cut off. I gave some of the calculations that you would do. And then I gave some examples of a patient that I have seen in terms of the protein needs, obviously as fitness professionals, um, you probably are going to be recommending higher protein needs for patients or clients that want to increase muscle mass, things like that. Um, so just, it's really going to be very different. Okay. Um, someone said they'd love to get tested. Is it expensive? Where do we go to get the testing? Is it covered by insurance? What is the cost? Okay. So the cost, um, I can only tell you what I know we have at Cleveland clinic. So at Cleveland clinic, we are under $300. Um, for the actual kits. And then from that kit perspective, you then have a consult with me. And then that um, is about, I want to say like $95 for an hour consult. Okay. So all in, you're probably like $400 or less. 
I don't know if other companies have it cheaper or if the reporting is cheaper, um, but I know that's the perspective we take. So you can email me if you want to get the link to how people actually register for nutrigenomics testing with me, and I'll send you the link and it will give you all the information um, that it shows for Cleveland Clinic. So that's kind of the first thing. Um, it's not covered by insurance and there is not one company that has it covered by insurance. We don't have genetic testing covered by insurance yet. The other thing I will say is I got a, another question from this. Um, we have had, I, I have actually had a few patients say to me, well, wasn't like 23andMe shut down and shouldn't I be worried about things like this? So one of the things that as you as a fitness professional or as a dietitian or a physician or a chiropractor, however you are kind of coming into this, you did look at the oath that you took before you started working with humans, and that is to do no harm. And so some of the companies that were shut down that are now back and running, um, that was not indicated because of the fact that certain people would actually get tested, they would find a false positive on something, and then they'll get um, a whole litany of extra tests that weren't necessary or maybe were traumatic to get, okay? And so that was kind of what had happened with that if you look back at the data on that one. Nutrigenomics is very different because um, people are not necessarily going to go and get extra major testing, biopsies or things like that. What your patients are most likely to get tested on after they have the test is mainly looking at things such as nutrient metabolism. I want to know what my vitamin D status is, my B12. I want to know, um, you know, things like that, that they can get tested from the blood draw. Okay. So that's like just getting a regular like CBC at your, at your doctors or getting specific information. And if you are um, a practitioner that does that, then you can do that in conjunction. I have talk to other practitioners that will say, well, we're really going to do a comprehensive nutrigenomics test. I'm actually going to take your blood work on the nutrient metabolism before your test results come in. And so you can go that route. It's a lot more expensive typically, and it takes um, more time and things like that. So I guess the last question I will do um, is how much time it takes. I can tell you for the lab we use, it's anywhere from two to four weeks. Um, and then what happens after? Well, my consult is essentially, I'm going to give you the data from the test based on your goals. Okay. Because we only have so much time and we got 70 genes, right? Got a lot of genes to cover. And I got to give you a little tutorial on nutrigenomics and genetics in general, just so you understand it. Um, so we basically go through that. And then a lot of patients will then go ahead and um, see me as just their regular dietitian. So, okay, I really like this. Now I want to do something further. Um, I will also tell you again, with the company that I work with, okay, and I don't work for that company, just to let you know, I don't have bias with them. Um, I just work with them with just what we've chosen for, for our um, healthcare organization. Um, they also have meal planning and they also have food frequency questionnaires. So they can also kind of determine um, food frequency and then help you with better reporting on the test results with that as well. And then also provide with meal plans. Um, and the meal plans are varying, right? They have a genetic test for just vegan diet. If you want to do vegan diet, I've mentioned fertility. Um, there's one that's just fitness, right? So if you want to learn more about that, I would go to Nutrigenomics, um, which is N-U-T-R-I-G-E-N-O-M-I-X. All the slides I showed you that were example reports, that's a Nutrigenomics report, okay? So just to let you know, they're a great company. I've loved working with them, um, and they're very credible, right? I think credibility is kind of like one of the most important things that we can provide to our patients, okay? So I think that's really important, and we can't forget about our credibility. Um, okay, 
Let me see if there's any other questions. Um, someone asked, is, uh, they mentioned a specific company. Is it a reputable company? I'm not a good person to ask that because I've only worked with one company and we just did our investigation on what was the most credible for ours. So um, it is the risk, right? Like as nutrigenomics becomes more popular, we are going to see the risk that a lot of different companies might come out of the woodworks um, and some might not be that credible. So that that's a, that's a tough one. That's definitely a tough one because even as consumers um, and, and healthcare practitioners, it's hard to tell that sometimes. Um, oh, this is a good question. If you've had DNA testing before, can you tap into that, like for family history? So the only place you can really do that is if you've gotten a comprehensive panel from something like 23andMe. I have worked with some practitioners. There is a practitioner outside of Kentucky called Wild Health. Um, they are amazing. They cater to uh, athletes and celebrities and things like that. They do a lot of genetic testing. And what they can do is they could take your 23andMe test, which has all your other health stuff, and they can then interpret the raw data that might be nutrigenomics data, right? So that's what I was talking about with raw data. Um, and sure, they can then take that approach and say, okay, here's all your genes for cardiometabolic health, and here's what we see in terms of your family history, again, getting back into cardiovascular genetics and what we understand with that perspective. So um, you know, I think that's like definitely an approach you can take. You really would need a comprehensive practice that knows what they're doing in that one. Um, okay. We already talked about the cost. I got that question as well. I'm getting a lot of questions through my email. Um, so I am going to, we got 50 seconds left. I'm going to close things down. Um, thank you again for attending. I hope this was helpful. I always say anytime I present, if you can take two to three nuggets away, then I've done my job and what I wanted to do with you today. So um, just keep in mind, there are many companies out there. You can email me if you want a little bit more insight or you want some more directions, like where to go in the right direction. Um, and that, again, when we think about our competition, the other personal trainers, the other dietitians that are trying to get the same patients you have, one of the things that can really offer us up as um, the true competitor in the market is being able to say, we also provide nutrigenomics testing as well. Thanks everybody for joining me today. Thank you for attending this conference. Have a great weekend and God bless.